Welcome to the Insight Podcast. My guest today is Rosie Martin. Rosie is a registered dietitian whose passion is helping others discover the incredible power of plants for health, happiness, sustainability, and compassion. We chat about how is it that food plays a role in climate change? Which foods are better for the planet and which are more damaging? Why this idea of food miles is more complicated than it's been made out to be? Her tips for eating more planet-friendly foods and more. Enjoy the episode. Okay, so Rosie, tell me about a new ingredient or recipe that you've tried or created recently that you now love and can't get enough of. I would say that a recent recipe is, it's not one that I've actually discovered recently, it's one that I've rediscovered. So when I first went plant-based, it was one that I made quite a lot um, and I kind of got out of the habit of making, but it's basically banana ice cream. So it's one that you, you, whoever, if someone follows me on Instagram, they've probably seen me making this quite a lot. But when your bananas are going slightly overripe, what you do is you chop them up, you put them in the freezer and then you blend them up and you can add any flavors to them. And the consistency is pretty much like ice cream and it's amazing because it's just bananas. So it's super healthy. And you can add things like almond butter or cacao powder or any toppings that you like, pistachios or vanilla extract or anything like that. And it's really, really delicious. So I've been making that a lot recently and I love it. <laughs> nice. That is a recipe that I've tried and you, you can't believe how sweet it is, can you? No, exactly. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievably sweet. And I put it in like a bit of cocoa powder and maybe some um, uh, like peanut butter. and, and Yeah, oh, it's perfect. Just, oh, it's, it's incredible. Perfect dessert, yeah. <laughs> yeah, one for the summer as well. And now we are finally getting, it feels like we are out the other side of winter and for sure. warming up and looking sunnier. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, great. That's, that's lovely to hear. So I want to talk to you about food and the climate. But before we get into that, I think it would be good to hear first about your career change in, in 2014. And that might help put into context why you're in such a unique position to talk about this, to talk about food and the climate. So can you tell me more about that? Yeah, of course. Um, So yes, 2014 was a bit of a pivotal year for me. Uh, Prior to that, I was working as a zoologist. Um, So 2012 to 2013, I was working at a zoo in Australia, working behind the scenes with lions, lions and tigers and bears and, you know, all of those kind of exciting things. And a bit of background to that is that I grew up as a celiac. So I was diagnosed with celiac disease at nine months old. So I'd always had this awareness of how nutrition impacted my health. Um, But then when I was in Australia, I was kind of researching different diets. I'd always struggled a bit with my gut health, despite being completely gluten free. And so I was kind of down the rabbit holes of YouTube one night, and I found the idea of a vegan diet. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to give it a shot, see what happens. And it was a bit of a false start because I did it in a in kind of the wrong way. I didn't really have anyone like myself to guide me on what to eat and how to eat. I probably had too much fruit and too much nut butter um, <laughs> to make up my calories. Um, but I got to the point about a year later where actually I discovered how to feed myself really well. I was making a lot of recipes from Deliciously Ella. Um, and at the same time, I started to understand more about the environmental um, side of veganism and also the animal welfare impacts as well. 
So this all culminated a little bit because I was feeling so great. So my fascination in nutrition kind of skyrocketed because I thought something's going on in my body that is amazing because I've got so much more energy. My digestion is better. And at the same time, with learning more around the animals, I was getting quite uncomfortable with working in the zoo industry and working with caged animals. So at that point in 2014, I turned down PhD or turned down an interview to do a PhD on giant pandas um, to move in to study nutrition and dietetics. And since then, I haven't looked back, but I've always been someone who's loved animals. So I've kind of over the years combined that from a nutrition point of view with kind of the wider aspects of, of the food system and what we choose to eat and how that impacts our environment and the animals and, and, um, and other aspects of, of bigger global issues that we need to think about. Wow, fascinating. <laughs> it's really fascinating. And I guess th- this isn't a conversation so much about the animal rights side of things, no. but it is interesting to still touch on that, that mm-hmm. you yourself felt that kind of, I guess, that unease, like you are, you're supposed to be an animal lover and looking after animals, but then still eating animals. Um, and, and I can remember when that kind of light switched on for me as well. Um, you know, I'm also a primary school teacher and talking to the children. The children love animals. They love, mm-hmm. you know, it, we're even baby pigs and, and little chicks and all these things. And we're talking about how cute they are. But then they're being served in the school canteen as well. And there's just something where you go, ah, okay. And, and I think it's just because there's a disassociation, isn't there? We don't associate yeah. that product that we're putting in our mouth with the animal because it's so far removed and I guess companies have done a really great job of of of, of creating that space so we don't have to think about it do we um, so like I said yeah. I know that that's not what this conversation is about but mm. it, it's just interesting to, to briefly touch on isn't it yeah it's absolutely interesting to touch on because I think that that side of things has an impact on so many other areas you know we do need to start thinking about animal welfare and what we're doing and, and yeah, taking away that disconnection that we've all grown up with and that many of us have inherently within us. I think once you start to unravel that and you start to see it in a different way, it's very difficult to go back. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So that being said, we are going to talk about food and the climate. Mm -hmm. They're all linked though, aren't they? Food, Mm -hmm. the climate, our health, animal rights. It just, it's animal welfare. It's just, it's, it's, it's all what uh, kind of makes up this one, one big puzzle. Um, The message does seem to be slowly but surely spreading, doesn't it? That our food choices are playing a role in climate change. It seems like everywhere I look, I'm seeing something about this link, whether it's on social media, whether it's more on some of the documentaries that have come out recently. You know, even David Attenborough documentaries on the BBC and things are mentioning this, aren't they? So that's really great to hear. Um, But still, maybe it's not happening quick enough for some of us. We we want that message to get out there quicker that, you know, certain foods are more damaging to the planet than others, aren't they? So this is a very broad question to start and take this as you like. But why is this the case? How, How can foods affect the planet and climate change? Yeah, nice big question. Absolutely. So not as as you said, not all foods require the same resources to produce. And, and that's what it comes down to, really. And so first of all, I'll give you a few stats. So wild mammals make up about 4% of the biomass of mammals on this planet. Humans make up 36% of that biomass. And a whopping 60% is our livestock. So for the birds, this is 70% is farmed poultry and 30% is wild birds. So if you really think about those figures, they're, they're pretty insane. And what I would say is that, 
you know, as George Monbiot often says, there's a population crisis, but it's not humans, it's livestock, because those farmed animals have a huge burden on the planet because they require vast amounts of resources such as crops, land, water, to get them to a, a place where we want to, to breed them or slaughter them and, and those sorts of things. So animals are really not an efficient way to feed populations because the energy that we get from them or that we get from you know eating them or drinking the secretions that they create is far less than the energy that we then had to put in to create those animals and to keep them alive for long and as long as you know we needed them. So in fact the, the research shows that that animals produce about 18% of our calories on about 80%. I think there's a range in figures there that I've seen between 70 to 83% of our farmed land. So you can see that they're really producing a minimal amount for the amount that they're taking up in terms of land. And land is one of the the things that we don't talk about so much. We we tend to focus a lot on things like greenhouse gas emissions and all of those other things, which are absolutely important. But I think land use is one of the things that we don't talk about as much. And if we think about farmland, it's actually destroying the ecosystems that would naturally be there. So we need to clear them to allow for grazing animals and growing crops to feed the animals. We actually need far more crops to feed animals than if we ate those crops directly. Um, and a further impact of grazing livestock um, and these vast monocrop fields is actually damaged soil ecosystems, which is really, really important. So soil is is the foundation of all life, really. It's, it's far more intricate and alive than we've ever given it credit for. And a lot of farming practices are destroying these ecosystems in the soil. Water and soil pollution as well. So we've got things like leaching of nitrates and antibiotics um, into the environment from animal agriculture. Um, and this causes pro processes like eutrophication um, and antibiotic resistance um, as well. So there's really, you know, so many effects um, that I can't, I can't really go into detail in, in, in the time that we have. Um, so in addition to this, obviously, we've got carbon emissions, as I mentioned, um, risk of pandemics um, yeah. as well. So, so tightly packed animals in, in certain areas, it increases that risk of, you know, the, the biosecurity risk there. And also, you know, as an add-on, not so much climate, but actually the psychological damage for people working in slaughterhouses as well. You know, it's quite a brutal place to be going to work every day. So there's that human um, uh, struggle there as well. Um, so ag animal agriculture, it's not just one of our main causes of carbon emissions and climate change, but it's also damaged the whole of Earth, Earth's processes that as humans, we really fundamentally rely on. It really is kind of the epitome of unsustainable in, in many ways. Mm -hmm. I think that is such a, I mean, I think it was about two minutes or just over two minutes where you gave such a, a kind of a concise picture of all the things that are going on. And maybe a listener can take that and that's a springboard to go and find out more. Okay, what, what is this? What is Rosie talking about with land use and, mm. um, you know, antibiotic resistance and things? It's just great to find out more from, from that point. But like you said, I think one of the main points about efficiency that seems to be the big one for me where you go ah yeah of course that makes so much sense like this is just not an efficient way for us to be getting our calories and so mm -hmm. I think that's I don't know maybe a more 
if you set aside your your tastes and your beliefs and your traditions and you just look at it from a more logical point of view, is this the most efficient way to to feed the billions of people on this planet? No, it's not. So what do we need to do? How do we need to pivot here um, mm-hmm. to make it more efficient? Because we're all aware of climate change. We know that it's it's going on and we want to do something about it. So let's talk about this efficiency piece. There are a couple of other things I wanted to mention, but is there anything else you'd say about, I don't know, the, the efficiency side of things? But I don't think so, I don't know. <laughs> I think, well, I think with, with that side of things, it just brings to mind the fact that, you know, it becomes a very human issue um, as Mm. well, because obviously we've got areas of the world where we're struggling to feed humans. But a lot of the Western world, we've got these huge animal, you know, farms, animal agriculture, where we're feeding billions of of animals, these crops um, or these soybeans from the Amazon, or, you know, we've got enough resources to feed all of these animals. So, you know, we're really if we, we took that away, we'd have much more to be able to feed the world's population with less land than we're using yeah. at the moment. And that's really it comes down to the efficiency again. I've heard a stat about if if we reduce our land use of the amount of like farmed animals that you'd free up the, something like the site, an area the size of Africa or something like that, like some insane yeah. amount of size. Is that right? Have you heard that? It stat is as well? right. So I think if we reduce if if we stop eating meat and dairy basically and we get rid of those industries i've seen stats to say that we would i think this is from poor and nemechek research if anyone wants to look look into it um but i think it's 75 percent less farmed land that we would use and that uh is kind of the the same land area as something like china australia europe um all combined. Um, I think yeah. there was another country in there as well. I have to have a look at my notes. But <laughs> yeah, there, there's a, a huge area of land. And if you think about the potential for rewilding that kind of area of the world, that's incredibly valu- valuable for human yeah. life on Earth. Yeah. It's it's such a, a big stat that it almost sounds unbelievable. But, it, but you know, yeah. that that is from that study that you mentioned, which I believe came out of the University of Oxford, didn't it? And, yeah. And it was a huge study across low, thousands of countries, thousands of farms, looking at all of these things that you've mentioned, yeah. um, land use and efficiency. And that's what it's mm-hmm. come out of. It's not kind of, you know, one random study. It was like a huge one, wasn't it? And so, yeah. as you said, you would encourage people to, to check that out and check out the summaries of that study because there's loads out there, aren't there? Yeah, absolutely. And if you have any doubts about anything that we're saying, you know, go out there and look for it. You know, we, we want to make sure everything we're saying is is right so i think you know i think when we're talking about these kinds of things it's it's a a build-up of the science and a similarity between lots of different reports who are saying the same things that we're getting this information from so unfortunately there is a side of it where there are huge industries where there's a lot of financial you know interest who are at threat and so that they can have an impact on muddying the water in many ways with mm. certain, you know, greenwashing terms or, you know, thinking about sustainable beet and dairy. And I think we need to be careful, really careful about where some of our information is coming from and, and what sources they're coming from and what biases they might have or what interest they might have, because this is really fundamental stuff. So yeah, yeah do your research if you're interested in this area, start yeah. looking yourself, absolutely. And it's so difficult, isn't it, for all of us to, to yeah. get confused because there's there's so much misinformation out there. And one great mm-hmm. example is that TED talk that talked about, um, I think it was regenerative, regenerative farming mm-hmm. that has got had millions of views and has kind of given people, I guess, the 
the not the permission, but the the kind of like the security and and feeling okay about oh yes, I, I can eat um, beef that's come from these kind of farms because actually it's good from the environment. That's what this TED talk um, has, has has told me. But I've seen so many people pick apart that that TED talk and just say it's it's based on nonsense and the studies are just not there to back it up at all. Yeah, and I it's, think it's difficult with regenerative farming because there probably is a way to farm that is better than other ways to farm. We can make farming a little bit more sustainable, but there isn't the land available to roll out the scale that we need regenerative farming to be at, to be able to feed the world. It's just, it, it doesn't make any sense. So I think a lot of that, you're absolutely right, is us trying to, I guess, keep the status quo with our diets because that's mm. kind of the easiest. It's quite kind of a, a comforting message to say that we can continue doing what we're doing um, as long as we're choosing these types of things. But also when you go to the supermarket, there's no aisle for regenerative, you know, farming produce or anything like that. So it's a, it's a very tricky area. And I think it's kind of tiptoeing around the edges of actually what really needs to happen. And so much of what we're being told now is that we need to act really, really soon to make yeah. a difference to what's going on with our environment and with our climate. Um, and I just don't think that that's the answer in, in any way. You know, the I, yeah, we'll, we'll, I think we'll come on to regenerative. Yeah, we will. We will. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Um, and then a couple of other things that you mentioned, we've talked about land use, you've talked about rewilding, and it just mm -hmm. makes me think of, you know, as I was growing up and you t you take a car journey, a train journey or something, and look out and see kind of green fields. And I guess uh, growing up, I thought, oh, that's natural. That's what yeah. it would have looked like, you know, grass, yeah. just like, you know, no forests or anything, but mm -hmm. oh, it's still green. So that must be natural. But the point is that's not natural, is it? And no, so much and of that land, sorry, go on, go on. No, I was just going to say there are, there are very few areas actually in the UK that would look as natural as before we started doing these these large scale farming. Um, there's areas near me in, in Dartmoor where you've kind of got a, a, a small microclimate in a way that's kind of like a, a, ra a UK rainforest. So there are small patches of that, but really it's, it's one of the only places in the UK that, that has that now. And so, yeah, we've grown up with this idea of the countryside, of cows, of grass, of this kind of picture that we're, we're painted. But from a natural point of view, none of that is natural. And a lot of that is actually damaging our, our, our ecosystem. Yeah. And one of the reasons is the soil, isn't it? Which you, you mentioned mm -hmm. and you talked about. And I'm glad you said the author's name because I've read his book and I watch him all the time. George Mongio, <laughs> is that correct? That's it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I've never known how to pronounce his name, but <laughs> his book's incredible, isn't it? And, and it, it starts by talking about the soil and just how um, important the soil is and yeah. how diverse the microorganisms and I can't remember some of the comparisons he made I think he might have compared it to the rainforest like you could dig yeah. up a piece of soil and the amount of different the, the the kind of the range of life in just that piece of soil and, and what it's doing for our planet it, it's just yeah. so it's diverse, incredibly so important. Yeah, yeah incredibly untapped and we we don't really know much about it you know we're, we're so we're learning more all the time, but it's really, we don't really understand the way in which it behaves. Um, and I think George Monbiot has gonna, done a great job at kind of bringing this more to people's awareness um, yeah. that actually soil is not just stuff. It, it's actually, you know, real living, breathing stuff that's making our, uh, helping us to grow, you know, plants and helping us to, to support ecosystems that we need as humans to rely on as well. You know, if we lost yeah. the soil, humans wouldn't be able to live. Yeah. 
and it's alive and doing so much. It, it kind of, yeah. I, th- I think of a comparison of like our, our bones and our skeleton. Again, you kind of grow up thinking they're just these like, I don't know, stony things inside yeah. of us that don't do anything where actually they are they're doing a lot aren't they yeah that's a really good comparison yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> um so um, we i guess we've kind of touched on this already but whether we can go a bit more deeper into these foods and and the types of foods are there certain foods that are good better for the planet and are there foods that are the most damaging to the planet and is that linked to land use? Is it linked to all of these things that you've you've mentioned? Yeah, absolutely. So when we think about foods that are going to be better for the planet, then we want to think about, as you know, we've talked about removing animal products and eating more plants. That is a way to get a more energy efficient diet, um, because even the very lowest impact meat and dairy products still cause much more environmental harm than the least sustainable vegetable and cereal growing. And studies into human health, you know, we know this is also good for our bodies, um, reducing our risk of diseases. Um, as a dietitian, this is what I talk a lot about in terms of things like heart disease, cancer, diabetes, um, due to that increased intake of fiber, phytochemicals from plants. Um, and, you know, if we're choosing whole plant foods, we can, it can also help us to manage our weight, having lower energy density meals, helping us to feel full and satisfied. You know, we don't want anyone on a restrictive diet or feeling hungry. Um, as well as feeding that crucial gut bacteria that play a pivotal role in our health um, in our gut. So when we come down to thinking about what we're eating for the environment, it's if we move from a high meat diet to a moderate meat diet. So if you're someone who's out there, you know, eating meat every meal um, of of the day or every evening of the week, Um, Then moving from that high meat diet to a moderate meat diet, we actually reduce our individual carbon emissions specifically by 22%. If we move to a vegan diet, um, we actually reduce that by 60%. So any move that you can make in that direction can is is super helpful so it's not saying that everyone needs to go vegan tomorrow although that would be fantastic for the environment (laughs) but if you're someone who's regularly eating meat then actually just cutting down in the first instance can make a big difference if you then move towards a predominantly plant-based or vegan diet you know you can make a massive difference Mm -hmm. and just to put this in context as well if everyone every family in the UK say ditches meat from just one meal a week so maybe if you decide to do meatless Mondays for this cause then that would be the same as taking about 16 million cars off the road so as a collective that can make a huge difference so the more we can choose that wide variety of plant foods and plant proteins and that's better Um, it really needs a fraction of the resources that animal needs Um, and I guess a bonus if anyone wants to take it further would be go to go for seasonal foods local foods getting more in touch with the environment around us and what is available to us when kind of get in touch with that a little bit more in terms of food that are the most damaging I would say would be meat and dairy so those are the two sort of big players in in causing damage to our environment so if you can do anything then significantly reducing or removing these foods from your diet would make the biggest impact to your environmental footprint research from poor and Nemechek, as we mentioned in 2019 tells us that avoiding meat and dairy is the single biggest way to reduce your environmental impact on the planet um, and as we mentioned before um, so without meat and dairy consumption we would reduce our global farm land use um, which would then free up um, 
free up farmland by about 75% as we mentioned so mm. um yeah US China European Union and Australia combined so huge yeah think of the yeah. rewilding and the biodiversity that could occur in this huge range yeah and then the the wildlife the animals that could then thrive and maybe mm. make a comeback and just that's the kind of world that we want to live on isn't it yeah, and that, that's the, the kind ideal. of world yeah, yeah that we see on the the David Attenborough documentaries and oh, that's what we want more of but yeah. we just I don't know, are, are so disconnected from how much is being destroyed and lost. Um, it's interesting that the whole the whole link between food and climate change is interesting. And, and that was my kind of gateway into a plant-based diet. It was when I was living in Mallorca and I there there wasn't kind of a, a recycling scheme and it didn't seem like it was very easy to like do do things like that and I was like mm-hmm. oh, well, well what can I do then if they, if they don't recycle and you just I'm just throwing everything in the bin I don't feel very easy uh, comfortable with that so what can I do to reduce my impact on the environment and a couple of uh internet searches and it's coming up with the food that you eat can make a massive impact and it's around the time that you know this the these research papers were coming out and other TED talks um, and and things, and you just you consume that, and you go, oh wow, this is the, the this is the thing that I can do that will have a most the, the biggest impact on the environment. How can that be true? Mm-hmm. And then you just go down that rabbit hole, don't you? Of, of you reading do. the books, listening to yeah. the podcasts, and just more and more finding yeah. out more and more, and it's 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 fascinating. <laughs> Absolutely, and then you realise these sort of other reasons how it can be beneficial as well, and it all kind of comes together. Exactly, all comes together because mm. then I tried it for for two weeks. And said, I'm just going to try a vegan diet for for two weeks. Felt great. You know what? Felt I did the lighter. same thing. Yeah, oh, really? I did the same thing. I tried it for two weeks. I said to myself when I did it properly this time, I said to myself, "I'll do it for two weeks, no pressure. Just see see what happens." And yeah, I didn't I didn't look back. Um, look so back, yeah. you know, I'd encourage anyone if you just want to give it a try, give it a try. You may find that you 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 know, stick to some habits and not others. Um, and yeah. I think not having that pressure on you to say, right, I'm going vegan or I'm doing this forever. Not having that pressure is a really nice way to start exploring it for sure. Yeah, definitely. And it's kind of, it's five years later for me and yeah. I, don't, I don't regret it. I feel great and I can <laughs> no. do everything that I want to do, run marathons, compete in fitness competitions and all these things. And it's, it's, it's no issue. I, I feel really good. Um, but I think what you said about the kind of the, the step-by-step approach and mm-hmm. you know, trying meatless Mondays or swapping certain meals, that's a really great point as well, isn't it? That, mm-hmm. You know, we're not, putting out there right everyone needs to just change overnight and mm-hmm. that could actually be that could actually lead to some discomfort couldn't it for people it could be Absolutely. quite challenging yeah. so this yeah. this kind of slow um and, and gradual approach and seeing what you get on get on with and what you enjoy um could not only could make you feel great but have way more of an impact than switching to an electric car or I don't know changing the light bulbs in your house and things this is something that can just have a huge huge effect definitely and I think we need to consider you know human behavior we're not very good at just switching and then sticking to something new immediately you know get to know it a little bit you know get get used to the different things that you're going to be choosing get used to those different meals over time you don't have to do it immediately some people will want to dive in and that's great go for it but most of us need a little bit of time to figure it all out yeah yeah definitely oh great um so i might bring up one of the um the points that people can use to push back against this argument Uh, and one of the points that they can make is about food miles uh so this idea that well if i'm eating something that's been grown fairly locally 
for example, meat or dairy products that have been um, produced locally, then that is better for the environment than having to ship um, you know, cans of beans or, or whatever it is, tofu um, from kind of South America. Um, so I'm making the better environmental choice by eating my animal products locally than you are, who's, you know, the, the saint that is the, the plant-based guy that's still talking about doing this. Um, you know, I'm making a better choice than you because those beans that you're eating have been shipped from, from thousands of miles away. It's not as simple as that though, is it? And actually it's not not quite the case. So can you, can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, of course. Um, so I do absolutely hear this a lot. A lot of people say, you know, eat local and that's what you're, that's going to solve our our crisis. But when we look at food miles as a percentage of a food's total impact, it really ends up being a small percentage. Um, of course, it's a smaller percentage for those foods that have a bigger overall impact of growing or breeding practices. So the greater the impact of that food as a whole, the smaller the percentage of impact mm. from food miles. So plant foods from abroad are actually always better than meat and dairy locally. Um, that is yeah. a big statement to make. Um, but from the science I've seen, that that is the way that it, it, that it, that it looks. Um, so, for example, avocados from South America are likely to have less of an impact than beef from your local farm. Um, and most food is actually shipped rather than flown due to costs yeah. involved in air freight. So obviously air freight is, is, has, has a heavier carbon um, footprint, um, but this obviously reduces the impact of, of transport. And when we look at kind of the impact of different veggies, you know, it's, it's exactly the same. So it's actually more taxing on the environment to grow out of season veg so, for example, Mediterranean veg in the winter here, um, so in polytunnels where we have to give it additional light and water and heat, even if that's just down the road from where you live, than it is to ship veg from a part of the world where it is growing naturally. So this is where it becomes a complex story. So food mm. from further away is, is, isn't always worse for the environment than something that, that's really local. Um, but I would say getting, you know, if you wanted to get all the best aspects from from all of the, the best out of all these aspects, then I would say to have seasonal plants from your local area as much as you can. But absolutely, it's more about the resources required to grow a product than how far it is, has come from further away. Obviously, you know, if it's coming from further away, it ha- will have a higher food mile impact. But we need to look at the actual food um, and, and look at what, what's been what's been needed to grow that food wherever it's been grown. Yeah, yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess I'll just repeat it though. What you said was about the the transportation of the product makes up a small percentage, doesn't it, of mm-hmm. the environmental impact. So I just think that's really important to to highlight. And it's something that doesn't quite make sense, does it? I don't I don't know why we just feel that feel uneasy with that fact, but mm-hmm. that is what it seems that the fact is that the the transporting of it is a small percentage and then you can kind of get your head around, okay, well, what does that mean about the the huge impact of these products that are, are being grown locally? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I just, it's, it's really, it's really interesting. Um, There's a really uh, good, graph actually um from our world in data um which there's an article on it in on on that website and there's a really good graph that kind of could help you to understand it if you're not quite getting your head around those sorts of things if anyone's wondering you know what that actually looks like then then head to that link and and i think that would be a good one to have a look at 
Yeah, definitely. Definitely a good point. Oh, interesting. And we mentioned regenerative farming as well mm-hmm. um, and the kind of some of the, the misconceptions around that. I don't, I don't know. Is there anything else you wanted to, to add around that? But if not, then I've got some other questions I can move yeah, on. Yeah, <laughs> I'll mention it. Yeah, a little bit around that. So regenerative farming, as we mentioned, it's growing in popularity and it is quite a vague mm. definition. And this idea that specific farming practices take care of the land while still raising animals for food. Um, The idea that grazing animals are required to support the health of the land. And this is not untrue. Animals are Mm. obviously an integral part of the overall overall ecosystem health. Um, And the idea of grass-fed and free-range animals is very popular too. But what is Mm. really happening is that the animals that we're farming, the domesticated animals that we have bred, are kind of taking over from the natural wildlife that would have originally been there. Um, So... You know, studies have shown that the amount of greenhouse gas emitted by even the most carbon friendly beef production, for example, is still over double that of the least carbon friendly um, tofu, beans, peas or nut production. So, as I mentioned, it's kind of teetering around the edges a little bit. And I I did mention before as well that there's simply not enough land to make regenerative farming methods scalable in a way that we would need to make animal agriculture sustainable. Um, and many people will talk about the importance of manure delivering vital nutrients back into the soil. Um, but worms really do the exact same thing. One quote I heard from Professor Amir Kassam um, that has stuck in my mind a little bit is that worms are like tiny cows in our soil. <laughs> so they do a really good job at um, delivering nutrients back into the soil and composting as well. So composting is is hugely beneficial and does all the all the similar things um, and I thought I, I just want to touch on the fact that there's also this idea that land needs to be profitable for humans for it for us to view it as valuable mm. so I would argue that land that's left to its own devices bringing back soil stability diverse ecosystems is actually much more valuable for humankind yeah yeah, definitely. And this is what we want, isn't it? This is, if we can rewild all of this area, then then that's yeah. what's good for the environment. That's how we take care of our of our planet. So yeah. it moves and we, in that direction. We live in a world where kind of short-term profits and, and tangible gain from land is viewed as more important. And I don't know how we change that. No, I don't know. Well, <laughs> the, 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 the message is slowly getting out there, mm-hmm. um, I think. So... The people that are listening to this and perhaps feeling more reassured and motivated and so might want to wake, make some changes to what they're eating. Um, what what tips, what advice do you, do you have for them? I would say take stock a little bit and, and look at mm. what you're eating now um, and look for the opportunities for where you can swap from an animal product to a plant-based product. Mm. So could you swap your pork sausages, for example, for plant-based sausages? Could you, you know, this is a good way to start. Could you swap your chicken stir fry for a tofu stir fry? You know, get the flavorings all really, really good. Get that ginger and soy sauce in there, you know, really get (laughs) meals that you really enjoy. Um, And could you start trying out some of those plant-based milks, such as oat or soya, instead of relying on, on dairy milk? And one of the really nice ways to think about this is is to think about what you can add in rather than what you need to take away. So can you kind of um, 
uh, add in things to your diet that would then crowd out some of those animal products. So can you add more veg to your plate? Can you add a tin of beans to your stew? You know, these are ways to bulk things out with plants. And it's a, a much more positive way of looking at things. What can you add in rather than what to immediately, you know, take away? What can you either swap or add? Um, and if you're someone who likes to dive in, as we mentioned, then, you know, give yourself a challenge, you know, try yeah. being vegan for 30 days or two weeks like we did. Um, or, you know, vega- like Veganuary, I think you can sign up to Veganuary at any point during the year and do your 30 days. So this gives you an opportunity to really explore the diet without that pressure of having to stick to it long term. And it might just change your habits and your preferences in the long term once you've had that real solid time of, of figuring things out and, and having something a bit different. Yeah, yeah. It's a bit like an exercise challenge, isn't it? You you could yeah. just go just go all in and then perhaps that then puts you on the path to making exercise more about your routine, but it's always yeah, good to definitely. just put a, put a marathon in the diary or something like that. Yeah. Right, I've got to stick to it now. <laughs> yeah, and, and challenges are great. I think as humans, we really thrive on setting ourselves challenges. Yeah. And I think as long as they're not too huge, we're doing things that actually we feel we can achieve it's a fantastic thing to to do. And once you've achieved that, it's a wonderful feeling as well. I think as humans, it's in our nature to try and achieve these certain, you know, milestones and things. So yeah, go for it. Have a go. Definitely, definitely. But then I, of course, really like the point that you mentioned about focusing what you are adding in rather than what you're taking away. And that's a message that I've tried to share over the last few years. Um, that yeah the, the the thought of what i'm missing out on doesn't doesn't really occur to me i'm just thinking oh wow i'm adding so much more color and vibrancy and flavor to my um cooking now that i just was not doing 10 years ago because Amazing. i just didn't, didn't know how to do it um mm-hmm. but you're kind of you're just with these recipes you're just forced to aren't you you're forced to get a bit creative and use new ingredients new spices and new herbs and all these different things and yeah it's, definitely it's really I think my diet diversified hugely when I went yeah. vegan a lot of people think of it as you know especially as being celiac and gluten-free as mm. well a lot of people will look at kind of what I you know the fact that I'm vegan I'm gluten-free and think gosh you must feel so restricted but actually it was going vegan that made me realize how much different plant foods there are out there how much different things you can make with different things you know you can have all the same cuisines but you play around with different plant foods in there um and yeah i've never eaten so much and so diverse and yeah yeah Definitely. Same, and if and if we want to aim for those, what is it, thirty plants per week that Tim That's it, uh, yeah. Tim Spector talks about? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've got microbiome, and it's just yeah. you you do it without even thinking. I think I, easy. I, one yeah. yeah one week I tallied up, and it was it was more than thirty, just easily. Brilliant. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and you can get about ten just in your overnight oats, can't you? If you, you can, yeah, <laughs> and a, a few toppings different... there, or, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's so, so easily done. Oh, great. Well, Rosie, thank you so much for for the information you shared. It's been very, um, really informative. And like I said, right at the beginning, very kind of concise as well. Like this, just making very, um, I don't know, very interesting points succinctly. And it means that we can, perhaps people listening can then go from there and find out more, you know, what, what was Rosie talking about in terms of land use and what are all these links? What was that study that she mentioned? How can I find out more? And there's just, there is so much information out there. There's, there's other podcasts, there's loads of videos and documentaries that talk about this stuff. And so if we can just keep getting that message out there, that mm-hmm. the food that we put on a plate really does have an impact and, and we can all we can all play our part, can't we? We can all we play, can. play that role of absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so there are 
three questions that I like to finish every episode with. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first one is, what's that one lesson that you wish you'd have been taught when you were younger, when you were a child? So there are two things that I wish I'd been taught. I'm going to give you a little bit of background quickly. So I was lucky to grow up as a vegetarian um, my when I was younger. My dad's a crop scientist and as part of his work as a lecturer, he went on a trip with his students to an abattoir in Eastern Europe in the 1980s. And what he saw there scarred him. And so when he got back, he said to my mum, we're going vegetarian. So she was like, yep, yes, let's do it. You know, and uh, this is, yeah, the 80s. Um, And so my mum, she wasn't a a massively creative, you know, we didn't have all the recipes of plant-based foods now, but she, so she regularly used corn products as a meat replacement um, Mm. for protein in our meals. But I couldn't have them as a celiac when they started adding wheat to them. So this meant that this meant when I, that I went back to eating meat for about 10 or 15 years through my teens and my early 20s. So I guess what I'd been what I wish I'd been taught um, and I don't blame my parents for this at all because the information just wasn't out there, um, but that I didn't need to eat animals for protein. I had always adored animals and I didn't like doing it. Um, I remember not I was very sensitive about anyone mentioning that it was animals on my plate when I was eating them. And also that the egg and dairy industries are as harmful or if not more harmful to animals than the meat industry. So those are the two things that I wish I'd been taught when I was younger. Basically, I wish I'd gone vegan earlier. (laughs) (laughs) And I think I might know the answer to this, but it might depend because it might be food centred the answer to this. But the question is, what's one habit I can add to or take away from my life that would help me and the people around me feel great? So it's not actually food related this time. So what I would say is that I think that everyone should get a little bit more connection with wildlife, with nature. Mm. We know it's good for our mind, our body, our gut. And as we've mentioned, removing animal products from my diet really heightened this connection with nature for me. Do what you can to help animals and wildlife, you know, move a snail to the side of the path when you're out on a walk or put some seeds out for the birds or adopt a rescue pet. Don't go for the for the one from a breeder. All of these things are really kind and loving things that we can do for other sentient beings in our world. And I believe, as we mentioned before, that this is a disconnection from our natural environment and other living creatures that has really severed our ability to support them, which obviously, as we mentioned, also risks our own demise. And it also feels really good when you do something nice for another being. It's really, it feels good in yourself as well. Yeah. And that connection with nature, it's just, it's natural, isn't it? It's where we want to be. Um, It's where we thrive. And I think I heard about a a study that said the people that spend more time in nature are more environmentally conscious. conscious. I guess it's that disconnect, isn't it? But if if you're out there thinking about it, then you're you're just going to be more kind of active in, in, in that kind of in that pursuit I guess absolutely yeah (laughs) and then the final question is if you could give everyone in the world one book which book would it be I think based on what we've discussed today I would really highly recommend George Monbiot's book Regenesis that we did mention he trained as a zoologist like me we have a shared background so um, I got to meet him a few weeks ago um, and we had a really good chat and it's yeah really interesting his insights and I learned so much from this book because it's got so many kind of poetic stories and explanations of earth's systems um which really yeah I learned I learned an awful lot from that book so I think if anyone wants to delve into the things that we've been talking about in a little bit more detail then that's a great one to pick up yeah 
Nice one. Thank you for that recommendation. And thank you for, for joining me, for, for giving me your, your time this morning to, to talk about this topic. I, I really appreciate it. Really appreciate all the kind of the preparation that you've clearly done and, and uh, referring to the, to the science and the research. Um, yeah, it's fantastic. I'm really grateful, Rosie. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for inviting me on. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you found my conversation with Rosie insightful. If you did enjoy the episode, please share it with friends, family and colleagues who you think would find it helpful and interesting. You can also support the podcast by following and rating the show on whichever app you're listening on. Thank you again and I look forward to bringing you another